0: We're in a series we're calling proactive versus reactive where we're noticing or at least recognizing (laughs) that if we're going to leave our decisions just to our reactions, that we're not going to get the outcome that we actually really want. We're not going to get the best long-term results. So it's only through proactively deciding on a certain course of action that we're going to uh, get what we want. We're going to be more successful at hitting what we really are aiming for. I am, going to, I am not going to be more successful, let's put it that way. I'm not going to be more successful at using my money wisely if I don't plan ahead of time. I'm not going to be more successful at exercising more or eating more healthily or reading more, whatever that good thing might be, if I just leave it to whatever my feeling is in the moment because I don't tend to want to just feel like it. I have to make some hard decisions and, and put that into my calendar to make it part of my proactive decision-making, to, to make it real in my day-to-day life. I have to make these hard decisions. So in this series, we have talked about a bunch of different things. That it's This is true for other aspects of our spiritual life. We said, hey, for our spirituality, we are going to be... People, if we want to be people who grow in our spirituality, we need to be proactive about it. We need to ma- take steps to make that happen, to grow and prioritize our faith life. We talked also about using our words proactively, that our reactive words are not always lovely, uh, but we, we thought about situations that trigger us and how we can be people who can be using our words to build other people up instead of tearing them down. And do it so according to their needs. Uh, Last week we talked about, we kind of made a shift where we went from more internal types of things to thinking more externally. How can our faith engage? The world, And we talked specifically about engaging the world with the good news of Jesus. We talked about the four leprous men who were outside the city. It was kind of a funny story. And uh, they found food when they were starving, and they ended up telling other people about that food, and they were the ones who got to bring good news to their city that was starving. So we also can be proactive in sharing good news, not hiding that we are Christians, but being a bit more open. I don't know if you were able to do that a bit this last week. I had a couple of really great conversations with people just talking about the fact that I go to church and that I'm a part of a church here in town. And uh, it was really, I had a really interesting conversation. I had to renew my insurance this last week. I had a really great conversation with my uh, insurance agent actually about that so not waiting for other people to ask us but to proactively begin those conversations and as we talk about engaging our world we 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 think about speaking about jesus is obviously one of the ways that is good and right it's a good and right way for us to engage with the world but it's not really a, a complete picture of how we engage our world and so today we're going to add a second part to that that as believers we need to engage the world around us by also doing what is right. So we are going to speak good news, and we're also going to do what's right. We're going to do good deeds. And we're going to get specific. Uh, oftentimes, when we think about doing good, we, we begin by thinking about maybe internal things, uh, thinking about our own personal purity, and that is good. But it just it can't stop there. It needs to go beyond that. Because, go ahead and put that one up. A living faith seeks our neighbor's good. Now, this is what we're going to talk about today, that a living faith seeks our neighbor's good. And in that phrase, you can see that there is a proactive word, seeks. We have to proactively pursue that. A living faith is one that seeks others' good, and it means that our faith isn't turned in on itself. That is to mirror the brokenness of our fallen world. That's, that's the way that Satan wants us to turn, is to continually turn toward ourselves. We have to turn outward toward other people, and not just the people that we would normally care for. God wants to grow our heart for people that we would not naturally care about, or that we have no legal reason to have to care for them, uh, no particular reason to have to do that. We're going to go further. So when the Bible talks about what a living faith looks like, it is always, it seems like it's always bigger than what I would choose for myself. It's always a bigger vision for the world. It's, it's more people. And, and that's kind of not surprising, right? That if, we're, if, if it's God pushing us, that God's going to move us farther than what we would do on our own. So we're going to look today at Isaiah chapter 1, where God is telling his people that they are missing something really big. If you have your Bible app or your Bible, you can open that up to Isaiah chapter 1. If you, if you don't necessarily bring a Bible with you, you can always grab one on your way in. We have a bookshelf in the back. You can grab a Bible on your way in each week. Before we read this, let's let's pray. Lord, we we ask you to guide us today by your Holy Spirit. We want want to serve the Father with our whole hearts, to have aim toward you. So Holy Spirit, work in us to understand your word. Because what Jesus has done has transformed our hearts, we serve you, the triune God. May we understand it and have courage today. To be people who do it, not not because we're earning anything for you, but because we want to enter into that grace. We want to be, we w- we want that grace in our lives. To be people who who serve you, so that the whole world may see that you are glorious and and that you are still alive and at work today. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. All right, a little background before we read this. Uh, I'm curious, does anybody know uh, what are some things you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? What do you know about Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? What are some things associated with that? Anything? Huh? Bad place. What was that? Sinful? Is that what I heard you say? I put words in your mouth? What happened to the place? Destroyed. It got destroyed. So God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a sinful place. God did away with that. That's going to be helpful for you to know as we read this particular passage. So in this passage we're going to read, God is actually addressing Jerusalem and Judah. This is a a kingdom, I mean, between the kingdoms, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel split in two. There was Israel to the north and Judah in the south. And Judah was the more faithful one. And in Judah is the city of Jerusalem. And God is speaking to them through Isaiah. And so remember that he's speaking specifically to Jerusalem and Judah. But what does he say to them? So open your Bible. This is Isaiah 1, beginning of verse 10. He says this, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So, it's, this is as if, you know, if God is saying to us, hey, he's speaking to Ventura County, to you here in Simi Valley in particular. He says, hey, listen to you, Ventura County, Simi Valley, you Sodom, you Gomorrah, not good. Right? Things are not good if God is calling you Sodom and Gomorrah. Not good. So, so they, they were destroyed because of their sin, and, and God had protected them. The verse just before that said, If God hadn't protected us, we would have been like them. Well, and God's saying, Hey, listen, why am I still protecting you if you're going to be like this? So it's surprising that he is talking to them. And what's even more surprising is they have been worshiping God. Okay, verse 11 the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. So it's not about the number of sacrifices that they're doing. They're doing it. They're bringing sacrifices to God. They, they're following God's commandments that He had given them, said that they're, He had laid this out in the law, that they're supposed to worship in a certain way. They're doing it. So it's not specifically about that. And, so, and God's saying, you know, it never really was about the animals. you sacrificed. It's not like God needs a sheep. It was always about this relationship, the connection between his people and God. What was going to happen in their hearts as they come forward to worship him? They're all supposed to be putting God first. All right, verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Yikes. New moon's sabbaths and convocations i cannot bear your worthless assemblies your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals i hate with all my being they have become a burden to me i am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands in prayer i hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers i am not listening so these are people who have been coming regularly to worship They're coming at the annual times that they're supposed to. They're coming at the seasonal times that they're supposed to. They're coming in the weekly times that they're supposed to. These are are people who are going to church regularly. And God's like, no, not that. They're praying. And and you know what God says about their worship? God calls their worship this. um, He calls it trampling his courts. Calls it meaningless. It's detestable. These are things that he hates with all his being, and they are wearisome. And when they pray, he says he is no longer listening. These are not what you want to hear from God. And I think that people would have been really surprised. They're like, hey, God, I'm, I'm showing up. I, I'm, I'm in the place. I'm doing the thing that I think you want. What is wrong? It's a, it's a really terrible situation because I think that they would think, hey, I'm, I'm checking off all the boxes that you want, God. I, I'm, I'm here, Right? And so for all the religiosity that's happening at the temple, it wasn't getting translated into life on the street. He says this. He says, your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So there was a movement in the 18th and 18th century called pietism uh, that said that our faith is supposed to be more than empty rituals. It's not just about theology. If you have been following along in the study guide with us during this series, I want to thank you for your uh, patience. If you probably found a couple typos or weird things, uh, I did not have it proofread, and so that's, uh, this is what we get. But one typo that you may not have caught was I actually wrote in there that uh, pietism was a 19th century movement. If you have your book, you can cross it out. 17th and 18th century uh, made a mistake. Uh, but the idea is pietism is, was this renewal movement that was happening in the church at a time when it was kind of like you were a Christian because of where you were born. These folks said, no, it's not just that. It's your faith or even, you know, the ritual and theology that we have is only meaningful if we actually believe it and if it ends up getting translated into some kind of life afterwards, if we're, if we're devoted to God and if we're seeking to live in holiness, that those are the only things that matter. That's what a genuinely spiritual life looks like, even if you're not doing it perfectly. But the idea is that it means something to you. So these so-called pietists, uh, they basically believe that Christianity should be characterized by more than just saying that you were a Christian, not saying the right things about God. It's that you should actually believe it and that that you should live in ways that demonstrate that God is real. That, That probably doesn't sound real shocking to you, right? But I'll tell you, that was a really big deal at that time. Because basically people said, you know, I, I'm born here, and so therefore I'm a Christian, so what difference does it make? This idea led to a rebirth of faith for some people at that time. And I will tell you, our, our denomination called the Evangelical Covenant was born out of a pietist heritage, that there were people who were these pietists who, who led this thing, and so there were people that we talk about in our heritage. And one guy in particular, he was born in eastern Germany, in the 17th century, he experienced an awakening of, of his faith and under the pietist teachings. And his name is August Hermann Franke. Here he is. He is a cool dude with an even cooler haircut. So um, he learned that his faith was, uh, was not just because he was born into a Christian family, But he wanted to make it his own. And his faith needed to impact the way that he lived. So so for Franke, what that meant for him is that he did a lot of teaching. He was teaching people about what it meant to follow Jesus. He's like, you need to actually believe this and live it. It needs to be in your heart. It needs to be in your life. And he did a bunch of other stuff. He created some amazing social services in eastern Germany where he was. He built a school for the poor. Uh, He constructed and had to keep finding funding for that school and for an orphanage. Hundreds and hundreds of kids. That he would feed every day there were miraculous stories about them uh, moments like they thought we have no food for the kids today and they were praying and then a baker would come and say i bake too much bread and then they would you know things like that so god was providing for them so he had an orphanage he had a free medical clinic that he had i think for those of you who uh, who work with the free clinic here in simi valley this should be your dude to find out about this guy this is somebody to learn about he was doing stuff that you're doing too And this guy, Franca, he coined a phrase that you may have heard repeated. Go ahead and put that up. He says, we do this for God's glory and our neighbor's good. We do this for God's glory and neighbor's good. That all of our life is for God's glory and neighbor's good. And he could have been taking this phrase basically directly from Isaiah 1, couldn't he have? Because a living faith seeks our neighbors good. That's what Isaiah is all about. And in Isaiah one, God is speaking, and He says the problem is not with the worship that you're bringing per se. The problem isn't what's happening in the temple. The problem is what's happening during the other six days of the week on the street. So it's not the problem of the temple. It's what's happening on the street. And what He wants to see is really clear. Go ahead and give us verse sixteen and seventeen. He says, "What what we want to see? Do we have that?" Do you have another, the next slide, go, go ahead. And, is we need to wash ourselves, make ourselves clean, take our evil deeds out of God's sight. Stop doing wrong. Go ahead in verse 17. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. So he's saying, hey, listen, your faith needs to be real and solid, not hollow and empty. Because what we believe is supposed to move us toward worshiping the true God. And what we believe is supposed to help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we're inviting people into this feast of of knowing God. And so we invite people, like we talked about last week, that there's this invitation to worship and love this God and taste and see that the Lord is good. But we're also working for our neighbor's good. And, And he says, especially for people who are marginalized and oppressed, these widows and orphans. Widows and orphans in those days were people who were particularly vulnerable. There weren't social services at that time, and so these are people who are vulnerable physically and socially, emotionally, all of those things. And and they were vulnerable. And because of the way that society was structured, a widow was particularly vulnerable. Uh, She was dependent on her husband's family for support. And if her husband were to die and her family either couldn't somehow support her or maybe all of the other males in the family had died, in the worst-case scenario, widows would have to choose between slavery, prostitution, destitution, all of those things. And if you read the book of Ruth through those lenses, you can understand how desperate she was. But in Isaiah's time, This worship of God had been kind of separated from justice. But what God is saying through Isaiah is that if his people aren't seeking justice, if they don't have any concern for the oppressed or marginalized people, then no amount of offerings or worship is going to ever compensate for that. All right, I'm going to stop right there for a second. Because I know when, if you're in this room or if you're online, a lot of people, when you hear talk about oppressed or marginalized, or that Christians can be concerned about justice, frankly, your guard goes up a little bit, right? Because the only place that you've maybe heard talk about that stuff has been maybe a bit more liberal, political circles, kind of woke circles, that kind of stuff. And because in the U.S. today, I think that the word justice has been a little bit co-opted by, uh, a bit spoiled, because of the political discourse in our world. But The word justice does not belong only to the PC police. Uh, God was about justice long before anybody else thought it was cool. So here's the question for us. Why should Bible-believing Christians, people who care about what's written in God's word, I'm pointing at this book. This is the covenant book of worship, not a Bible. So um, I meant the Bible. Why is the Bible? Uh, Why should Bible-believing Christians, why should we care about this thing? Because you and I, we might be kind of tempted to skip over this. And maybe you have never heard it talked about in a church that actually cares about Scripture. So there are at least two good reasons why we can't blow past this uncomfortable teaching. So if somebody were to ask you, why should you care about this? I want you to have these two things you can say. The first one is, it is driven by the Bible and not by an agenda. It's driven by Scripture. So in Isaiah 1, we have this clear call not to wait, but we're supposed to take these proactive steps toward this direction. And he uses tons of proactive language. Each of the verbs in verse 17 pushes us outside of ourselves. He says, learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It sounds like somebody who's willing to actually go to court for somebody. It sounds like you're willing to go to bat for somebody. And these are themes, I will tell you, that are throughout all of the Old Testament. Buckle up, we're going to be in the book of Prophets. We're going to go through a bunch of Prophets in the summer and the fall, and it's gonna, we're going to talk about this some more. So, so here's the thing, though, too. This is all over the Old Testament, but it's not just an Old Testament idea. It's definitely in the New Testament as well. If anything, our life, during our life in Christ, this is multiplied or or amplified. Listen to the Apostle James who writes this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. James 2, he says, you know, this faith, if your faith isn't doing stuff, it's dead. And he has said what that looks like in the chapter above. James 1, it says this, religion that our God and Father accepts as faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. These are the same three categories that were talked about in Isaiah 1, right? That we're supposed to be people who are cleansed, that we care for orphans, we care for widows. I think that James might have been reading Isaiah 1 at some point, right? So the Apostle James, he's telling us that living faith in Jesus means that our hearts have to grow For people around us. And I just want to tell you, that makes me a little uncomfortable because I I want to be more comfortable. I don't necessarily want this to be part of it. I want to like add some spiritual part to my life. I want to kind of live my regular life and then kind of feel a little spiritual on top of that. I'm just, that's kind of like the default that a lot of us as Americans, we kind of want. We just want to have like an extra bonus. I don't want my life order of things that I'm supposed to care about to get touched that's what God is doing. God says, if I am in your life, I'm supposed to set the agenda of what things are important. And loving your neighbor, specifically somebody that you don't want to think about, is supposed to be part of that. So it's intensified. It didn't go away in Jesus. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's here in Isaiah 1, and it's intensified for us as Christians. The Apostle Paul, he says some of the same stuff. He says, uh, all the things that seem to be outwardly associated with faith, he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you've probably heard that at a wedding, um, that it's all a bunch of noise. He says it's a clanging symbol if we don't have love for someone else. So it's super important. Doing right, defending the, impre- the oppressed and all that, it is, it's concrete actions that we're supposed to take as individuals and as a church. I think that we're going to have to work together to figure out always what that's going to mean to keep it important for us. I I naturally kind of want to discount this, i got to say, but I, I can't avoid it because it's in God's own word. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's as clear as God saying that we need to make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. It's as clear to me as God's sexual ethic that God says that our, it's supposed to shape the way that we view our sexuality. It's as clear, and even if I'm uncomfortable with it, it's as clear as this. And I've got to say, it's, it, it may not be normally on the channel that you're thinking about. Uh, it may not be there. But I don't want you to do it just because some pastor talks about it. I don't want you to do it just because we run across it. It's, uh, maybe it's on the channel that you usually flip past. Um, but it is here in God's word, and that's one of the first reasons we can't blow past this. Secondly, uh, the reason why we can't blow past this, why why we would do this, is because doing good to the oppressed is actually a response to God's action toward us. Doing good to the oppressed is a response to God's action toward us. So when God gave his law to his people, it was just after the Exodus, so God brought his people out of slavery in the Exodus, and he, and he gave them his law, but his law always was the thing that followed from his compassion toward them. The law was given to people who had just been rescued out of oppression. It wasn't supposed to be new oppression to them. They had been slaves. God had intervened, changed them, and God brought them out of Egypt with his mighty power. And that same God, he hadn't forgotten about oppressed people in the interim. He still has that concern. It's actually woven into all of the law. All this stuff about widows and orphans is actually throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the first five books of the Bible, the law of God. And so it's more for us as Christians. Here's a couple of scriptures. Romans 5:6 says this, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, the The part of us understand that we should understand that we were powerless. God died, and that's when Christ died for us. Next is, for when he, this is God, had rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he, he took us out of darkness and brought us into his kingdom. That was what God was doing, that we have this forgiveness of sins. That's in Colossians, by the way. Pastor Vaughn Roberts, he writes this. In Christ, God cared for us when we were weak, helpless, and defenseless. So it follows that Christ's disciples should show the same compassion for others. But our actions of doing good for others aren't, let's just be clear, it's not part of earning a point system. We're not trying to earn points toward God. It's all, it's not about doing stuff for God. What we are People who are transformed by what God has done in our lives. So then we care about different things. So we're, we're just following God's example of compassion. That God is a compassionate God. And we have been shown compassion. And so it's supposed to flow out of that. That we It, it kind of shows in some ways how much we really understand how bad our situation was. That we needed Christ so deeply that God would show us compassion that helps us to be able to say, hey, I I can care about people that I wouldn't otherwise care about. I've had a pretty good example of people showing me and my family compassion recently, the last few weeks. Um, You guys have cared really well for me and my family uh, and my wife, Karen, following her breast cancer diagnosis. Um, Thank you guys so much for that. I I think I didn't really want to make a big deal out of it a lot, maybe... Maybe I didn't want to be distracting. I think that's what I said. Um, I think I didn't want to be really vulnerable very much. Um, but So if you didn't know, she had a surgery to remove a lump in her breast on Wednesday, and it seems like things are going very well. So praise God for that. Um, thank you. Um, so I know that a lot of you kind of had an extra dose of compassion because you had experienced being cared for by other people, and I feel like you kind of paid it forward or you did that for me. Uh, I, I have experienced a lot of your care and compassion following her diagnosis. And I, I, it wasn't, I'm used to being the guy who gets to pray for everybody else and care for them. It was a little uncomfortable for me, but good for my soul to have other people say, we're going to pray for you. We're going to check on you. Kurt, are you stopping? Are you, are you, are you allowing us to care for you but here's the thing is that I feel like the question is, is that because of the pattern of what God has done and we're supposed to respond to it, the question for me then is, in the future, am I able then to be someone who is more compassionate to other people because I've gone through that? I've experienced other people's compassion. Maybe I can be somebody now who can do that when somebody else is in a similar situation. And that's, that's what all of us are supposed to do, that we have been poured into by God and it overflows into our compassion for other people. It's the, this is the pattern. Will it overflow? Because our faith needs to be personal. But it can't only be personal. And what I mean by that is that our faith, it has to be something that it, we appropriate for ourselves. We, we say, this is my faith. But it can't only be personalized, that it stops there. That it has to overflow into action, in our words, and our actions. It has to have an outward dimension. It can't be personalized. I can't be the end of the flow. So let's just be honest and say that this idea of us, both of these things, to tell you the truth, sharing the good news didn't make everybody very uncomfortable, very comfortable last week. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable to think about engaging with our world, to do that by sharing God's Word. And it maybe makes you uncomfortable to think about how we need to have actions that serve God as well, that we would have concrete actions that care for people that we wouldn't otherwise care for. It's just as difficult. It's not that I don't believe that my faith shouldn't engage the world. I just just feel like it's a little bit uncomfortable. But I know that I want my life. I know that my life has to engage the world because that's what God wants to flow through me. So if God is really God, if Christ really did die and rose again, if there really is a new kingdom in place, then the impact that should go out from us should confirm the message that we preach. And Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying that it needs to not just be worship because that wasn't good enough. It needs to not just be in here. It needs to be on the street out there. So it needs to impact in a way that shows our actions that confirm our message. So what's it going to mean for us to be proactive in this? I think that the easiest possible way, I I don't want to, I I think we need to pray to ask God to grow our heart, really to see ourselves as recipients of God's compassion, to really understand that. But I would love for us to figure out what are some concrete ways for us to be engaged in that. Maybe it was through, you know, we made the food packs for kids. That was wonderful. I just feel like this needs to be a part of our life, a part of our budget for us to be doing this kind of stuff. And I, I don't necessarily have the exact steps for what that's going to look like. I think doing the global 6K is probably a pretty good step in that direction. You're, you're doing something to care for somebody that you never have thought about before. You probably will never see in this life. But we're doing that because God is working in us. Not because, not because I don't know, you just feel like it's something you're supposed to do, but we would say, I do this because God cared for me in my oppression. That because of Christ, I think that makes a difference between us being, uh, uh, whether we care about Scripture or not, is that we do these kinds of things because of what Christ has done on the cross. That we were people who were impacted by God's own compassion. That Christ gave his life for us on the cross. That we are followers of Jesus. We have been bought at a price. And so we now live according to God's own compassionate rules so we proclaim the gospel clearly courageously and we want to live with our actions in a way that proclaims and undermines that not undermines that underlines underlines <laughs> not undermines it but we want to proclaim the kingdom clearly with our actions as well and i can imagine if we were doing those things together gosh what an impact that would have preaching the good news and doing good works it would it would energize us and i think it would be compelling to our world. Because we're not just just doing, we're not a club just doing good things. We are are on mission. People that God has bought. I think it would be amazing. Next week, we're going to wrap up this series. We're going to be talking a little bit about relationships. And before we move on now to the Lord's Supper, I want to say next week is Mother's Day. And I want to acknowledge that some of you have been made to feel a little uncomfortable at times in churches on Mother's Day. Uh, we don't want that, uh, if that has been your case. Um, if you have ever purposely avoided church on Mother's Day, uh, then I want, you to, um, I, I want you to try to give next week a chance. Uh, we, it, Mother's Day can be super joyous, it can be wonderful, and it can be super painful. Because some of us have lost our mom in this last year. Some of us have lost a child this year. Some of us want to be mothers and haven't gotten to that point. Uh, Some of us have a really rocky relationship with our mom. Uh, Some of us don't feel like we are the mom that we should be. Uh, Some of us uh, just want to be married, whatever. Mother's Day is fraught with emotion. It's also very joyous. It's wonderful. Uh, I hope your kids give you a tie or whatever you get on Mother's Day. Um, 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 But... uh, what we are going to do, uh, <laughs> what we are going to do, um, we, have, we have a cross here. We're going to bring in another cross. And uh, what we've done over the last couple of years is that we, we have a little three-by-five card, and you are going to engage with Jesus. I want you to bring your joys and sorrows to the Lord. And that's all we're going to do. I'm not, uh, so if you want to be a part of that, I want, I want you to be here for that. I think it's moving for us to engage God about our joys and our sorrows. I hope you'll be here for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word in Isaiah 1. I feel like it's so much bigger than we could even get at today, Uh, but I am disturbed by the idea that even if I'm worshiping a lot, that somehow even then that you would say that you wouldn't even listen to my prayers. I know that it's not on my merit, but it's on Jesus' merit. It's not by what I do, it's by what Christ has bought for me. But I pray as much as your spirit is willing to pour out in us that we will be a community of people who care for other people around us, that we proclaim the word clearly, that we do good works that, that underline that. God, we want your spirit at work in us to change our values, to shape our vision for what is possible. We pray for our city of Simi Valley that you will shape this place. You will change our friends and our family, that they will see you, know you, love you, and that all of us will worship together around what Jesus has done. We pray in Christ.